Hello, I'm Charles Goddard, Editorial Director at The Economist Group. Welcome to this Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the health of the ocean. It's not so long ago, just a little more than a decade perhaps, that most people were unaware of the nature and scale of plastic pollution in the ocean. And arguably, we're in a similar position today with marine chemical pollution, except that this kind of pollution appears to be an even more intractable problem because it's less visible and less discernible. It disperses and dilutes more readily, and it is more difficult, certainly, to monitor, trace, and assess. In the first of a series of podcasts on chemical pollution in the ocean, we explore the scope and the scale of the problem and ask How worried should we be about the impact of chemical pollution on ocean life and ecosystems and on human health? Joining me to discuss the issue, I'm delighted to welcome two distinguished experts, Elsie Sunderland, the Gordon Mackay Professor of Environmental Chemistry and Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. A warm welcome to the podcast, Elsie. Well, thank you for the invitation to talk to you about this important subject today. And Alex Rogers. Director of Science at RevOcean, a privately funded research and expedition vessel and visiting professor at Oxford University. A warm welcome to you too, Alex. Thank you, Charles. Elsie Sunderland, could I start first of all with the problem and the question, what is the scope and extent of chemical pollution in the ocean? Do we have anything approaching a clear understanding of this? When we think about chemical pollution, we often think about industries and contaminated sites. And we don't often think about where that chemical pollution goes. So since the Industrial Revolution and the rise in chemical manufacturing, there's been a great increase in pollution to rivers, which eventually flow into coastal ecosystems, so into marine ecosystems. And then those are in turn mixed globally. You asked about the extent of the problem, and it's really a global problem in my mind. The focus of our monitoring, of course, has been very much on those inland land-based systems with a little bit of coastal monitoring, and our understanding of the ocean as a whole is indeed quite limited, as you suggested. So I think what you're suggesting is that we only have limited monitoring of ocean chemical pollution. Do we have anything like an overarching understanding of the scale of the problem, do you feel? We understand when we look at the amounts of chemicals that humans have produced as part of society that there have been very large quantities of chemicals. So there are different classes of chemicals. There are chemicals that we as humans have manufactured, so persistent organic pollutants. And then there are trace elements that are naturally present in the Earth's crust, and we've disrupted those biogeochemical cycles and produced large quantities of pollution. I've already mentioned the, the rivers as a main mechanism for chemical pollution getting into the ocean. And another main mechanism is the atmosphere. So many of these elements are what we call volatile, as in they take on a gaseous form and are distributed through the atmosphere and then deposited in precipitation to the ocean or exchange that gas form with the surface of the ocean. And the ocean is 70% of the Earth's surface. So we have, as I mentioned, you know, some monitoring data in coastal ecosystems where you can see a really big impact of chemical pollution. And then we've been looking through just a handful of observations through open ocean cruises at chemicals in the open ocean. 
And it's very hard with such a limited amount of data to say what is the extent of the problem, but certainly we do see chemical pollution of synthetic human-made chemicals in the most remote environments. So typically, you know, when we see them in the high Arctic or in the Southern Ocean, this is quite alarming because these are the most remote environments on Earth and we can see these synthetic organic chemicals or trace elements that have been enriched through human activities. Thank you. Alex Rogers, we have, as Elsie was saying, alarming bits of knowledge about ocean chemical pollution, but do we still only have a limited understanding and appreciation of the nature and scope and indeed extent of marine chemical pollution? I think that is the case, Charles. I mean, in terms of the biological effects of these chemicals, we have some data for a limited range of them. Those data generally pertain to specific organisms rather than at the ecosystem level. So although we have some data on toxic effects, if you like, of some of these chemicals on some model organisms, we have very little understanding of the distribution of these chemicals and their effects at the whole ecosystem level. And in that sense, what concerns you most then about the state of the problem and indeed the state of the science? Because it seems fairly clear that we have some science where we think it matters, that is in coastal ecosystems and in estuaries and rivers, but we have very little that seems to extend too far beyond that, with some exceptions. Yeah, I think that's right. In terms of concern, I think just the huge range of chemicals now produced by modern society, used by industry, but also actually now widely used in the home. So things like personal care products, pharmaceuticals, a whole range of chemicals used every day in the household. Many of these do end up in the ocean. We have very little idea of where they go in the environment. We have pinpoint measurements, individual studies, which look at where these chemicals are occurring and their concentrations, but very little understanding of their effect on the environment. And I think we've got to remember that some of these chemicals have biological effects at extremely low concentrations. So they can act as endocrine disruptors. They interfere with fertility of marine organisms and indeed humans when humans are exposed to them, and they affect many other biological processes as well at very, very low concentrations. Elsie, can I just pick up on that and just ask you this question about whether or not it really matters if these chemicals are diluted in the largest landscape of the ocean, if they disperse readily and freely across the ocean, there is a view that that's fine, that the ocean is big enough to take that and that we shouldn't worry too much about it. How mistaken is that view in your view? I'm sure you're going to say it's mistaken. 
Well, there's a term we use, which is in aquatic pollution, and we often say it in the classes I teach. So the solution to pollution is dilution, right? <laughs> um, and that's the old paradigm. And we're learning, in fact, that because these very, very low levels that Alex is mentioning can actually end up being a biological concern. And the mechanism through which that happens is, in fact, you have these very trace concentrations in seawater or suspended particulate matter. And you have a process called bioaccumulation, whereby the, these chemicals, many of them biomagnify in food webs. What that means, so let's use the example of methylmercury, one 100 gram tuna fish meal uh, to get the equivalent dose, you would have to drink 10,000 liters of water. And I wouldn't recommend that for seawater, of course. But you, you get biomagnification levels of a million times or more for many of these pollutants. So in fact, they reach very high concentrations in predatory organisms. So we see it in high trophic level fish. You asked Alex a moment ago about impacts in the open ocean. Should we really be worried? But you see many of those migratory open ocean organisms, so pelagic organisms, so things like tuna, which people love to eat whales, different marine mammals, seals, polar bears, all with incredibly high concentrations of different organic pollutants and in some cases trace elements that biomagnify like methylmercury in their tissues. And this is in my mind of substantial concern, particularly for those organisms and then for any human population that consumes those organisms as part of their traditional lifestyle. Let me come on to human health in a moment, but if I can come back to you, Alex, with a follow-up to the point you raised earlier about a lot of the science being done in a quite fragmented way, looking at different organisms, but not potentially ecosystems, looking at the small, not the large picture. What is it about that approach that doesn't allow us to understand the way in which chemicals alongside other human stresses on the ocean have that magnified impact that you're potentially talking about? What is it that we need to do differently about the way in which we look at chemical pollution in relation to other stresses in the ocean as well, if we are to understand the impacts that they have? Yeah, this is a really important point, actually, Charles. So the normal way that experiments are done on model organisms is you expose them to a range of concentrations of a specific pollutant. What you don't tend to do is to expose your model organisms or indeed a suite of organisms to a cocktail of chemicals, which in reality is the situation that is going to often be faced by marine organisms and ecosystems. Also, chemical pollution does interact with other changes we're seeing in the ocean. So changes in ocean temperature, changes in terms of the ocean acidification state or the pH of seawater has an influence on the levels of toxicity that these chemicals exhibit, but also to the overall levels of stress that organisms are faced with, and that can alter the effects of these chemicals on those organisms. So, for example, I saw a paper recently looking at the effects of plasticizers on mussels, so a very common marine organism that we're all familiar with, 
but it was found that the effects of those pollutants change with the effects of altered temperature on those mussels. So in a situation where we're getting warming of the ocean, the effects of those pollutants are likely to be different. Elsie, could I just follow that question up with you as well? Is the way we approach science, the science of the ocean, and the way in which we do our science of the ocean, preventing us in a way from decoding such complex multiple layers of stresses in the ocean? And what is it about the science that potentially needs to change in order to be able to look at those things in that way? That's a great question, Charles. I think one of the issues with the way we conduct science, which is at odds with this ecosystem approach that we've been talking about, is is science is very much still siloed into disciplines. And when we talk about chemical pollution in the ocean, we're talking about chemistry, we're talking about oceanography, we're talking about ecology, and all of those fields needing to work together to think about how they interact. A big issue that relates to this problem is fishery science, in fact. And there are many people who work on accounting for, say, the impacts of climate change on fluctuations in fish stocks and fish mobility in a way that we're maybe missing an aspect of this problem that is very important is thinking about, well, okay, so we can design management strategies to estimate the number of fish that we can sustainably harvest from the ocean and we can build in buffers of safety for stressors like climate change or other types of fluctuations that we know are occurring in the environment. And one thing that we've really overlooked because the communities of science don't interact necessarily as much as they should is, well, what is that additional stressor introduced by chemical pollution? How is that affecting the fecundity or number of fish that these stocks are able to reproduce each year that really impacts the sustainable harvest numbers? So I hope that example kind of illustrates how multifaceted and multidimensional this problem is. And I think we really have to think, what is the problem and design the science to address the problem rather than looking at it through a disciplinary lens? Alex, I know you've been trying to design some quite ambitious programs, particularly in the deep sea. And that's an area where not only is this kind of science difficult, but any kind of science is difficult. How are we going to understand what the impact of chemicals are in the deep sea? And we have also the possibility soon that there will be deep sea mining, and that itself could, I think, have an impact on polluting the marine environment at that depth. Is that not right? That's absolutely right. We certainly know that pollutants uh, are found even in the very deepest parts of the ocean. So places like Marianas Trench, which is nearly 11 kilometres deep at its deepest, we know pollutants are there. And even plastic pollution has reached some of the most remote locations in the ocean. It's really difficult to do deep sea science. You need big ships to go out and sample, particularly for biological studies. It's immensely expensive, talking about one, two million dollars for a single cruise. But also deep sea organisms are uniquely adapted to the extreme environment in which they live. This means that they are adapted all the way down to the level of their cells and the molecules that make up those cells to life at extreme high pressure and low temperatures. They live for a very long time. In fact, 
there is a paper describing a sponge from the South China Sea, which may live for 11,000 years. So just from that point of view, thinking about the effects of cumulative chemical pollution on organisms which are so long-lived is something which we really haven't done. What we do know about are organisms in shallower waters, which, as Elsie said, are at the top of the food chain, which are quite long-lived. And we know that chemicals accumulate in those animals and are passed to subsequent generations and occur at concentrations which certainly are having biological impacts on those organisms. But what happens in the deep sea environment when you're dealing with organisms which live for hundreds or thousands of years, frankly, we just don't understand that at all at the moment. You're listening to a Back to Blue podcast, part of an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation on the Health of the Ocean. I'm speaking to two distinguished scientists, Elsie Sunderland and Alex Rogers, about chemical pollution in the ocean. Elsie, can I come now to perhaps the other side of the discussion, the solution side of the discussion? We are entering, as we speak, the UN Decade of Ocean Science. And one element of this international ambition is to better understand marine pollution globally from a science point of view. What do you think the opportunities are to scale up this aspect of ocean science? And realistically, is there really an appetite to do so? Again, another excellent question. So I believe that the first part of creating a solution is to fully understand the problem and have people realize how it impacts their everyday life. So I think as we're discovering a severity of chemical pollution in the ocean and their impacts on multiple organisms, and we talk to the public about this, then this becomes more and more of a pressing issue. And I believe that's why we're seeing these issues raised as in these SDG goals. So I'm ever an optimist. I think that these are great opportunities for us to both speak with the public, speak to policymakers, and take unified action on these fronts. And I think the challenge is in the details that we're talking about today, thinking about the scope, thinking about how ambitious it's realistic to be, thinking about the distribution of resources to address this issue in combination with other issues. Alex, can I just ask you, are there not other pressing ocean priorities for science? And even if we were to get this effort underway, what kind of collaborative approaches would be needed? And realistically, can those be put together? Yeah, that's a challenging question, Charles. Obviously, there are many other pressing issues in the ocean, things like overfishing, destructive effects of fishing, the effects of invasive species, coastal development, climate change. But I think the chemical pollution problem differs from at least some of those other issues in terms of us really not understanding the full scope of the problem. So, for example, with overfishing, we understand that problem very well. We understand what the solutions are to that problem. It's just a matter of getting the political will to sort that issue out. But with chemical pollution, I don't think we fully understand the nature of the issue, just how serious it really is. And I think part of the reason for that is that the chemical industry is immensely innovative and is producing you know, many, many new chemicals 
year on year when regulators ban the use of a certain chemical then the industrial chemists essentially find an alternative compound and it may be years until we discover that actually there are also problems with this compound and we've seen this time and time again with things like flame retardants and other chemicals so for me the solution has got to start really at the industry side and we've got to start looking at the way that chemists are trained the fact that they need to be really aware of the potential environmental consequences of using certain types of chemistry and we've got to think about really reversal of the burden of proof onto industry in terms of showing that the chemicals they're manufacturing are environmentally safe. One region of the world, just to pick up on that point, that does seem to be addressing this problem of going to the source, i.e. to the industries and talking to them about how this could change, is the European Union. I think an interesting aspect of the Green Deal that the European Union is putting forward is the way it's connecting freshwater and saltwater under the broad umbrella of the hydrosphere. I wonder, Elsie, if I can just ask you, is this kind of holistic vision whereby there's a whole policy push, a strategic push, to try and drive zero pollution across the hydrosphere, both fresh and salt water, is this kind of approach the right way forward, do you feel? That's another excellent question, Charles, so thanks for asking. I think anytime we think about interconnected systems, it's very beneficial. So thinking about chemical pollution and the links between land and the ocean and even the atmosphere would be advantageous when we think back to the source, as Alex talked about. So thinking about how that chemical industry and our production influences those ecosystems. So I'm glad to see that kind of thinking. I think one thing we have to recognize that we haven't talked about as much this morning is simply the persistence of these compounds. So once they're introduced to the environment, especially the ones that we're creating that don't exist naturally in nature, they don't degrade over time or they degrade very, very slowly. So what we're dealing with is a cumulative problem and thinking about it in this connected way is a great direction. When we talk about zero pollution, I think it's great to have goals. I think we're not quite there yet. So I commend the European Union for being ambitious, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about how we will get to zero pollution. Well, let me end, if I may, on a question for both of you that tries to draw this together. And it's an observation that it's certainly not unusual now to hear of pollution and indeed increasingly chemical pollution as the third planetary crisis. And certainly in the planetary boundaries debate, pollution figures prominently also. Of course, pollution is the byproduct of our economic activities by and large. Do you see pollution as being the silent or missing anthropogenic challenge? What priority should we give it, Alex? I think it very much is the invisible environmental challenge. I mean, essentially what we're doing is we're manufacturing and using these chemicals, but completely ignoring the environmental cost of doing that. And that is not only having an impact on nature, but it is probably having a significant impact on human health and well-being. And not only is it probably causing 
serious and significant health effects, but ultimately the price for dealing with those impacts is being accrued by a broader society. So we really need to look at how we're using these chemicals, what the alternatives may be, and really to try and understand how to avoid the consequences of using such a broad spectrum of chemicals and to try and reach a more sustainable approach to producing them and using them. Elsie, uh, just finally to you, I mean, we've chosen in many ways not to elevate chemical pollution until perhaps recently as a key problem that we face, as an anthropogenic challenge that we face. Is it that silent and missing anthropogenic challenge? Do we need to really give it that priority it seems to deserve? Yes, well, I think it's actually an incredibly important topic, particularly when we look at human populations over time and we look at incidences of certain chronic diseases. So we see a variety of outcomes or health outcomes associated with exposure to chemical pollution. And these are things like neurodevelopmental delays in children, impaired immune function, impacts on metabolic function, risk of obesity, and things like these. And if you look at statistics, so say just pick the United States population, you see this alarming rise in those chronic diseases. And we have lots of epidemiologists working on that, trying to understand why that occurs and correcting for changes in lifestyle and diet and things like that. And you see a gap in what they're able to explain. And that gap corresponds with this global rise in chemical pollution. And so we're, we're raising this global background. So you asked about it as another major global problem. And indeed it is. It's happening today. And you, know, you have to deal with it because it's the most urgent thing. It's one of these things that's slowly rising in the background. And we can see it in our large-scale public health statistics. And it is very alarming in my mind. And so having this kind of coherent action that the UN is talking about, thinking about the large-scale implications of chemical pollution in the ocean, accumulation in some of the last wild foods that we eat, I think this is absolutely essential. Elsie Sunderland, Professor of Environmental Chemistry at Harvard University, and Alex Rogers, Director of Science at RevOcean, thank you very much indeed. And thank you all for listening. In the lead-up to the World Ocean Summit in 2022, in March next year, and also to the launch of our own chemicals report on the ocean next March. There will be further episodes where we plan to discuss different aspects of chemical pollution in the ocean with our guests. So stay tuned and subscribe to this channel. You can also sign up to our newsletter on backtoblueinitiative.com so we can keep you posted about our latest content on Back to Blue, an initiative of Economist Impact and the Nippon Foundation. Have a good day and thank you very much.